Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 6. We're going to go back there after taking a break last week from it. Uh, Luke chapter 6, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to read along, There's a Bible beneath the chair in front of you or near you, and you can use that. Um, And also, we say this from time to time, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, like you've never read it, for example, you can just take one of ours. No one's going to stop you on the way out. Um, You will owe me some money for the Bibles. That was a terrible joke. That was like like a totally pastor joke. Uh, Well, I guess all of my jokes are pastor jokes because I'm a pastor. But anyway, uh, you can take those with you. You can take them home. You can read them. If that's something you want to do. Uh, Jesus, if you've been with us, he's in this teaching that's commonly called the Sermon on the Plain, and we'll pick it up in verse 37. He says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye. You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now this passage doesn't really feel like it goes together. It feels almost like it's three individual wisdom sayings or wisdom teachings of Jesus, but there actually is a flow. It's just a little bit more difficult to see in the English. And the flow begins in the preceding verses when Jesus is talking about one's enemies. Jesus talks about loving your enemies. He actually talks about doing good to your enemies. And he says the reason you ought to do good is because God shows kindness both to the wicked and to the ungrateful. Be merciful, he says. Why? Because God is merciful. 
And it's almost then as Jesus is saying, I want you to know what doing good looks like. I want you to know what being merciful looks like. And that's when he jumps into the verses that we just read. And he begins really by saying, here's two things I'm going to recommend you don't do. Or two prohibitions, we might say. Do not judge and do not condemn. Now, this is not saying that we can never say something is bad or evil. This goes a level deeper than that. What these words suggest is that you presume to know what's buried in the heart of somebody else and you feel comfortable leveling judgment against that person. That you are able to point at them and name it and say, this is absolutely wrong, they are bad. In some ways what it's saying is that there's a standard and that this person falls below it. That this person, as one definition says, it's saying that this person is less than what is good, true, and beautiful. This summer, um, I attended a couple of gymnastics competitions that my daughter was in, and I noticed this happening all of the time, that there was a standard, and every gymnast was told, you fall below it. It's the gymnastic judges. By the way, I was watching the, the people who were judging the competition, and I realized they didn't look very happy. And the only thing they do, now I'm sure there's someone here who's like a gymnastics judge that's like, oh, you're going to be wrong in what you say. I might be. Um, but really what they do is they recognize that there's a standard. There is a routine. There is a score that is given out before anyone does any of their performance. And then the judges sit there and what do they do? They note every mistake in every flaw and they scrutinize the entire thing. And so there is a standard. And then when they show the scores to the gymnast, they say, you are less than the standard. You are going to do a routine that was going to be a 9.7. We're going to give you an 8.3 because you didn't point your toes. This is this idea of judgment, except it's much more insidious because we're talking about the heart of a person. There is a standard. And after observing and noting the mistakes that you've made, you are less than. What it really does is it begins to create a split. There's good and there's evil. There is a standard. You fall outside of that. And this split that a judgment creates or condemnation creates actually can go just from looking at someone saying, you don't meet the standard to an us versus them. Judgment gives us, it allows us to have this like momentary illusion where we believe that we are morally perfect, that we are not less than, and we can look at others because we are morally perfect and we can judge them. There's a negative aspect to this whole thing. When you begin with judgment, when you begin with condemnation, rather than observation or curiosity, it often goes toward the negative. This is what Jesus is saying, don't participate in this, be merciful. Don't go this way. And he doesn't just talk about judgment and condemnation. He doesn't talk about what you shouldn't do. He also says, and this is what you should do. You should forgive and you should give freely. Now, just like judging people is difficult not to do, forgiveness in giving is difficult to do. 
I'm not sure there's anything more difficult than forgiveness. As a pastor who's preached on forgiveness over the years, I know that the single most difficult thing to preach about is forgiveness. People would rather hear a guilt-ridden sermon about giving financially than to talk about forgiveness. Because to be human is to be someone who's been wounded by another. And forgiveness says you need to let them go. You need to surrender the outcomes of that. I've heard it said before that forgiveness is freeing somebody and then realizing that you're really freeing yourself. That's true in part, but you're also liberating the person who wounded you. I think that's why forgiveness is so deeply challenging and difficult and something that we find nearly impossible. The theologian Miroslav Volf has written a lot about forgiveness, and the reason he writes a lot about forgiveness is because his family were victims of a, of a genocide. And he talked about what it took for him to learn how to forgive the people who performed genocide against his family members. And he says one of the reasons that he believes that there is a God is because to forgive is supernatural. It's superhuman. One cannot do it on their own. But Jesus says you want to be merciful, then practice forgiveness. You want to be merciful, then give generously. And he gives this image at the end of it that a measure pressed down and shaken together will be poured into your lap. And it will be overflowing. This is this picture of generosity. If there's anything Jesus is saying about being merciful, he's saying be generous. When it comes to judgment, be generous. You don't know what's going on or why someone's acting the way that they do. The rabbinic commentary on judgment just simply says this, judge favorably. Another commentary says, give others the benefit of the doubt. Be generous. You don't know what's going on. Assume the best would be the idea. And what's more generous than liberating someone else and liberating yourself at the same time through the power of forgiveness? Be generous is what Jesus is saying. Don't assume the worst. Don't hold on to bitterness. And then he starts talking in, in more uh, images and stories. He says, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? Blindness, by the way, is a metaphor that Jesus plays a lot with in the Gospels. It's his way of saying, you think that you know what's going on, but spiritually, no, you're blind, actually. There's a story in, in John chapter 9 where Jesus heals a man who's born blind, and all of a sudden, people begin to investigate it because they can't believe that this guy, of all people, was, was actually healed. And so the religious authorities are investigating. There's a group of, of very religious people called the Pharisees who are asking all sorts of questions. They bring in the guy's parents, and they're like, is this really your son? Because no one can believe that he's been healed. Eventually, they get to the bottom of the whole thing and realize that it was that Jesus of Nazareth that healed the guy. How dare he? And so they begin accusing Jesus of all sorts of things. And the story of Jesus healing the man born blind ends this way with Jesus' words to the religious. He says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? See, the idea is, is if you really believe 
that you know what's buried within the heart of another person, you think you have some sort of knowledge or some sort of insight or some sort of understanding that no one else has. And Jesus says, yeah, if you think that, you're actually blind. He says, no student is greater than the teacher. And when they're fully trained, then they'll be like the teacher. Or, more literal translation would be, and when they grow up, when they mature, when they stop acting like children, then they'll be like the teacher. And he says, you want to know how to grow up? You want to know what that looks like? You want to know what it looks like not to be blind? You want to know what I'm talking about, in other words? And he illustrates it with really kind of a comical little parable or story. He talks about having a log sticking out of your eye and going up to somebody who has a little piece of chaff. Think about like dead grass and a little tiny piece of dead grass that like gets lodged in your eye. That's the image. And he says it's like you're going with a log sticking out of your eye to your brother and saying, hey, you got something in your eye. Let me help, let me help you get it out. Some would say that this is what's called projection. That there's something wrong with you, but rather than see it in yourself, you see it in the other. The Swiss psychologist Carl Jung called this the shadow. Now the shadow isn't what you're consciously aware of that you're trying to hide from everybody because it's shameful or embarrassing. The shadow is what you're not aware of, and if someone told you it was true about you, you would deny it till your dying day. And oftentimes what we do with our shadow is we project it onto other people, and we're not even fully aware it's there. This whole idea of the log is almost like just Jesus saying, you don't even know you have it there. Of course you don't, because the eye doesn't see itself. But man, you can sure see it in others. And this is that idea of that projection. Carl Jung, in talking about this, says it this way, most people are content to be self-righteous and prefer to vilify one another rather than recognize their own projections. We don't want to see the log in our eye. This is what Jesus is pointing out, and then he finally drops it. He says, you hypocrites, which is a pretty potent and powerful word. In Jesus' day, hypocrites referred to actors who would perform in the Greek or the Roman theater, and they would come out wearing huge masks with exaggerated features. And everyone knew they were playing a part, but it wasn't really them. This is what Jesus says, you hypocrites, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see clearly to help your brother with the speck in his eye that you seem to be so obsessed with. You want to know what it's like to be merciful? Stop judging and condemning people. Start forgiving and giving generously. Don't pretend like you can see everything and know everything because if you do, you're blind. Grow up a little bit. And the first step toward growing up, by the way, is taking that massive beam, that massive two-by-four out of your eye. Then you'll be someone who can see clearly. I hear these verses and I think to myself, are there any verses that the religious people need to hear more than these? Am I right? Are there any verses in the world that the church needs to hear more than these? This condemnatory, judgmental institution that's caused so much pain? Years ago, uh, when I was in college, I went to a pretty conservative Christian college in the Midwest in the middle of a cornfield, which does not narrow it down because there's a lot of those. And um, I wasn't a bad 
kid, I would say. I just wasn't very interested in all of the institutional preferences that were put before us, which meant I garnered some attention from the authorities, we'll say. And there was one time I was just in a, I don't know, I was kind of frustrated with life maybe. I was like in the, you know, the kind of angsty college student thing. I was listening to like a lot of Nirvana at that point. And um, this guy came up to me, and I can't remember what it was that I had done that he wanted to come and condemn me for, but he walked up and was like, excuse me, I have something that I feel like I need to confront you about, which is always a great opener in conversation. Just opens people right up. Be like, oh, please, yeah, tell me what's wrong with me. I'm really excited to hear. And he like listed this whole thing, and I just listened, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I knew what I was going to say. It's like I couldn't wait. I mean, it's just like this hanging curveball is going to knock out of the park. And when he finished, I said, well, thank you. But I must say, I'm really surprised that you could see that with that plank in your eye. Boom! Oh, the universe just like jolted for a second. Everything slowed down. Oh, the rights were made right and the wrongs were made wrong. The sheep and the goats were, I mean, just everything was perfect. And doesn't it feel really good to be able to, like, hit that forehand down the line? What's with all the sports metaphors, by the way? I'm dropping some. Felt really good. But here's what I'm recognizing. That's often how we come to these verses. Like, how many of you so far this morning, you've been sitting listening to the teaching, and as you're listening and reflecting, what you're considering most is the actions and attitudes and words of others while at the very same time not considering your actions and attitudes and words toward others. How many of you, when you've been listening, you're thinking about the actions and attitudes and words of others, but you're really not reflecting on your actions, attitudes, or words toward others? I raise that question because in all of the years that I've been around the church, I've never heard these verses quoted, I've never heard these verses taught on, and I've never read these verses in a way that invites or that suggests this is self-reflection, this is for us. It's almost always, oh, if the people who needed to hear this were just in the room right now, man, life would be better. And it's often about them or those people or that group. They're the ones that need to hear this. The problem is the context of these verses. Jesus isn't preaching to those who oppose him. All of this teaching that Jesus gives is to his own disciples. Jesus is talking to his own people here. Which means if you're here and you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, or yeah, I follow Jesus, well, then these words are for you and for me and for us. Not for them. There's a little bit of like a preacher's sucker punch right there, wasn't it? I can judge by the silence in the room that maybe we're touching on something here. You see, I asked that question about how we've been listening, and I make the observation about how these verses have often been used because I've grown up around the church. I've grown up soaked in Christianity. My parents were Christians long before I was born. And from the, I don't remember my first time in church. What I do know is that I grew up going to church three to four times a week. 
Some of you are here and you're like, wait, three to four times a week. For those of you who know what that means, you're like, oh, one of those. Okay, yeah. I went to Christian elementary school, Christian middle school, Christian high school, a Bible institute, <laughs> uh, a Christian college after that, then seminary. Some of you are like, man, you are so sheltered. It's adorable, really endearing. And I saw a lot of this kind of attitude. Judgment, condemnation, legalism, arrogance, hubris, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, by the way, is when you look at someone and be like, if you were more like me in our group, you would be so much better. Instead of saying, hmm, I hope and pray that you will discover the healing that's possible in Jesus. I grew up around all that. And then I started, after like all those years around Christians, I was like, you know what I should do? I should work in a church. <laughs> That'll be great. And I saw more of it. And because I started preaching, I became a target for it. It's called email. Man, some of the emails I've received are just unbelievable. And the anonymous note, that's the best one. Really tells me you want to are interested in having conversation. And in 2007, I was in Michigan, and I was at a point where I was sad over it. I was angry about it. I wanted nothing to do with it anymore. And in the midst of that feeling, my family and I moved here to Denver, Colorado. And I remember having this moment of like, oh, oh, I think I've left that all behind. I really think I'm done with that legalism and that arrogance and that self-righteousness and that condemnatory, judgmental spirit. Oh, I feel like I can breathe, man. It's like one of those, you didn't realize that someone was sitting on your chest and then when they got up, you're like, oh, I do have lung capacity. That's kind of how I felt. And I'll tell you something, of all the predictions I could have made about people who lean more left or more liberal or fancy themselves progressive, I would never have said they will fall into the same legalistic trap that our forefathers did. But lo and behold, here we are with a bunch of legalists who are judgmental and arrogant and have all sorts of hubris. Let's just be honest, it's just an updated paint job. Like it's a little bit more current. The issues we care about are more important. Oh, sure, you should have talked to fundamentalists in the late 70s and early 80s. They sounded a lot like you. It was just different issues. And by the way, I'm not talking about people out there. I'm talking about like this is right here at DCC with us, among us. For a long time, I've said this quote. The church is at her sparkling best when we seek to be a healing agent in culture and not the moral police of it. Have you noticed like how much moral policing is going on from the left? If you don't know what I mean, just get on Twitter for like six minutes before you vomit. Like anything you say or do, even something you said or did 15 years ago, we are going to tack your ass to the wall. I mean, honestly, if there were video cameras when I was in college, I would be in hiding somewhere. Because all of us have done things, done things we regret, all of us have wounded other people, all of us have said foolish and hateful and bigoted and ignorant things, haven't we? But man, all of a sudden there is this moral policing, and I'll tell you what, it's terrible in some sectors, but where I see it worse is in this progressive Christian movement that honestly, for me a lot of times, I'm like, it feels very regressive. You're just repeating the same sins. Richard Rohr, in talking about this attitude that exists in the church, he says this, 
Immature religion creates a high degree of cognitively rigid people, utterly dualistic thinkers, and often very hateful and crusading people invariably about a single issue where they focus all their anger. Yep. Yep. So what I want to do is I want to ask, I don't know, eight or nine questions of us this morning to help us reflect. What do you think about those who have different views on social and political issues in our country or who vote for the other party? The party we don't speak of. I just realized I didn't even like name the other party because we can't. Did you know research has been done that in the 1960s, the vast majority of Americans said, I do not want my son or daughter to marry someone of a different skin color. And now, in today's day and age, the percentage of people who say, I do not want my son or daughter to marry someone from the opposite political party is higher than it was in the 60s about marrying someone with a different ethnicity. So what do you think? When you're like hanging out with somebody and you're chit-chatting and they're like, oh, they're pretty great. And then politics comes up and you feel that little like, oh, this can, this can go either way. And then they tell you who they voted for and it's not who you voted for. Do you think, I really want to get to know this person more and hear about the values that drove them to vote for that candidate? Judging by the laughter, that's like the guilty laughter. Like, the, <laughs> that's so weird that you would say that because I would never have done that, anything like that. This is, hey. Next question. What is your opinion of others who hold Christian values, beliefs, and theology that differs from yours? Uh, a friend of mine is a great writer, and I just read some of what he's working on right now, and I thought, oh my goodness, all you're doing is destroying people who have different values. Like, there's actually more than one way to read the Bible. I find it interesting that so many of my progressive friends are like, there's all kinds of ways to read the Bible. No one way is right. And I'm like, well, what about people who say this? Well, that's not a right way to read it, obviously. Oh, interesting. Okay. So that, like, you, your life is a performative contradiction. Got it. Helpful. I understand it now. What's your opinion of others? We say things like dogmatic. We say things like, well, they just don't get it. And you get it? Is that what that means? Okay. Helpful. Next question. It's a good time in here, isn't it? When you talk about what you believe or share your viewpoint, do you speak as though you are right? One of my favorite phrases that sounds horribly academic snobbish, like snob, is epistemological humility. All it means is be humble in what you believe. You might be wrong. It's really helpful to remember that if you had lived a thousand years ago and you showed up at the church espousing the beliefs that you hold right now, they would have burned you at the stake. In a thousand years from now, I guarantee you, people will look back at us and been like, how silly and slow to believe they were. So, when you talk about what you believe or when you share your viewpoint, are you convinced that you are right? Airtight case. Or do you practice epistemological humility? This is what I believe. This is what I've learned. And I recognize there's a million reasons why I've come to this place and I'm still evolving and I'm still growing and I might be wrong. I'd love to hear what you say. Maybe we should ask the other question, do you listen as though the other person is right? You have something to learn from that. Next question. Do you look at those you believe are behind you with disdain? This, by the way, this is something that we often do. I know many of you seated here grew up in the church and around the church. 
And I know many of you seated here, like me, have been wounded by the church, by people in the church, by people who claim to love Jesus. But there's this very subtle thing that happens of like, oh, you know, we're growing, we're expanding, we're evolving. And then we begin to look back and we go, can you believe that people are still talking about that? Can you believe like that church is still in existence? And there's like this very cutting, disdainful way of looking at the places where we come from. When you look at those that you believe are behind you, do you do so with disdain? Next slide. Do you think if more people thought, lived, and acted like you or your group, the world would be a better place? In other words, the way you live your life is the solution that the world needs. I was with uh, John Philip Newell this summer, and he's the one who said, this is actually what self-righteousness is, is when you think, man, if they were just more like us, they were just more like us, then things would be better. That's just the refusal to see our own shadow. That's just another log in our eye, isn't it? Next slide. Are we generous in how we offer forgiveness to others? One of the things that saddened me most about where I see our current culture is that there is no forgiveness anywhere. One of the things that's blowing my mind is not only is it not forgiving, but the hatred is just ramping up and ramping up and ramping up. Almost every week, you can check the papers tomorrow. The papers, how old am I? You can check the internet tomorrow. Um, Almost every single week after a weekend of sports, you can find not one article or two articles, a smattering of articles about an athlete who played poorly for their team who is getting destroyed on social media. Oftentimes, there are threats accompanying the, the mockery and the disdain and the hate. Somebody played bad. Ooh, we can't even forgive that. How generous are we in forgiving other people? Remember, by the way, if you listen to the teachings of Jesus or buy into who he is, he talks about that you've been forgiven a lot. Maybe you should turn and forgive. I'm not saying it's easy. Just saying, are we generous in how we offer forgiveness to others? Next question. Do you find yourself overly aware and critical of the actions, attitudes, and words of others? In other words, are there people that activate you and get you going like from zero to 100 in a second? You just see their picture and you're off and running. Can we just name the elephant in the room? Former President Donald Trump. Hmm? By the way, he's like the progressive group of people. He's like the puppet master and they're his marionette. Have you noticed this? I mean, honestly, no matter what the guy does, people just, and they lose their mind. Well, it seems like we're overly aware and critical, almost like obsessed. Are there certain people in your life you just can't stop thinking about because they bother you so deeply? Or are there people that you see and you worship and you want to follow them? You'd be like, I would give anything to spend a day with them. Okay, a little odd because you don't know them, but do they exist? Next question. Do you see the world in terms of groups as a way of knowing who is in and who is out? Were you chanting, lock her up? Or were you saying, they're a basket of deplorables? By the way, this is what great fundamentalist religion does, is they just pin the evil on one group. They divide the world up between good and bad. It's that simple. And it's really actually pretty nice. 
Because depending on how someone voted, well, now we know who they are. Have you noticed there's like insider language too that helps you identify who's in the right group? When I was growing up, there were things, words like, well, God willing, ooh. <laughs> or like if you were going to give your testimony, you had to talk about the blood. There was all these things that you had to point to, and it was your way. Born again, that way people knew, okay, they're in the group. Use the right lingo. And by the way, most people don't really have a sense of humor around any of this. Like they can't even laugh about their own group. Because, I mean, we, we got some stuff to do, some stuff to clean up, and it's all over there. Do we divide the world up between in-groups and out-groups? We might say it this way, between the saved and the unsaved, between the believers and the non-believers. Next slide. Is that the last question? Oh, no. Do you judge those who came before you believing they got it all wrong? There's a great um, passage in Matthew chapter 23 that we will actually work our way through in Lent 2024. Not kidding. It's called the seven woes. And Jesus is pronouncing woes on the religious. And woes in Jesus' day were like, oh, this is not good at all, is kind of the idea of woes. In one of the woes that he says, he says, woe to you, the religious, the hypocrites, because you de uh, decorate the tombs of the prophets, and you say, if I had lived in the days of my ancestors, I would not have participated in shedding the blood of the prophets. And he says, not true. You're just as guilty as they are. The reason I ask this question is because I hear people frequently talking about the places that they came from or even reflecting on the history of, I don't know, let's say the United States or any other country or any other empire, and they just keep going back and back and back and back and back, and they just say things like, can you believe the way that people lived back then? Yes, because if you understand the historical and situational context, you would have lived the exact same way. And if you say, no, if I was back there, I would have taken a stand, Jesus says, mm, not likely. Not likely. When we look back, can we name some things that were misguided? Yes. Just like generations from now, people will look back at us and name ways that we were misguided. Do you judge those who came before you believing they got it all wrong? See, these are some of the questions that Jesus starts digging out with this idea of the speck in the plank. Don't project. Jesus says, listen, do you want to you be someone who, who's like your teacher? You want to grow up? You want to mature? You want to be merciful? You want to do good to those who hate you? Good. First step, take the log out of your eye. That's a very poetic way of talking, and so some of you are like, well, what does that even mean? Well, it means wake up to the shadows that you're projecting onto others. Own your stuff. Recognize that, yes, your crap like everyone else's, stinks. This is the invitation. Now you might say, well, like, well, if that's the first step, or a step, then what's the first step of that step? Well, this is actually a really, really wonderful exercise, and I'm going to encourage all of you to do it, and I'm not joking even a little bit. Think of one person in your life. You don't even have to know this person. One person who just bugs the living crap out of you. And I know you all have somebody. It could be like, you know, Deborah at work. Or there are oils that just oh, burn my throat, you know. And I don't know. It could be Matt on the soccer team. Gosh, that guy thinks he's so great. Actually, he's playing in the World Cup. Paid 300 bucks for his cleats. Barely can run. That kind of thing. Like, who bugs you? It could be a television person. It could be me. Some of you are like, yep, now you're, now you're preaching. 
Would you just shut up? You have a minute and 14 seconds left, and you're going to go long. I know. <laughs> or think of someone that you're obsessed with. Like you have like a, you have on your Google, whatever, uh, homepage, you have like the bings when there's news about them and you just can't read enough about them, that if someone said to you, like, hey, if you could have a beer with anybody before they even finish, you're naming them, and then you know all about them, who they married to, why their first marriage fell apart, what their kids' names are, how old their kids are, what hospital they were, you just... And it kind of gets creepy. It could even be someone that you know or work with. You look at someone and go, oh, they're so incredibly creative. I, I, I could never be like that. And you find yourself drawn and pulled. Just think of one person who fits any of those categories. One. And then spend time thinking about why they bug you or inspire you or trouble you or why you're drawn to them. You can even write it down. Or you can go out for brunch after this with a group of friends and be like, hey, Michael asked that question about one person who bugs you. Let's go around the table and talk about it. It would be really great, vulnerable, relationship-building conversation. Learn why. And here's what's true. The more you dig into what really activates you about that person, you're going to begin realizing, oh, this is some of the stuff about myself that I really don't like. Rumi, in one of his poems, wrote this. Everybody's scandalous flaw is mine. That one thing that you just cannot tolerate. Everyone's scandalous flaw is mine. Start poking into that. And maybe some of that log that's stuck in your eye will slowly begin coming out. And then, Jesus says, then you'll see clearly to help your brother. By, by the way, Jesus doesn't say, take the log out of your eye so that you can point out the specks. And, no, then you will see more clearly. Then you'll be healed. And by the way, we can do this with courage, and we can even do it with a little bit of laughter. We can do it without taking ourselves so seriously. Why? Because God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. He is merciful. There is grace. You see, when we judge others, when we refuse to forgive others, we rob the world of grace, a world that so desperately needs it. Because we say, you are beyond grace. I don't need it because I'm so good, and I'm not going to extend any to you. No. We can take the log out because of grace, because of goodness, because of kindness, because of mercy. We can experience the healing, and we can embody that in a world that so desperately needs it. I mean, haven't we had enough of Twitter? Haven't we had enough of people raking other people across the coals? Haven't we had enough of violence? Haven't we had enough of shootings? Haven't we had enough of parents going to town on each other at football games and punching each other's lights out and students fighting as a result of the whole thing? Haven't we had enough? Have we had enough of the hate? The church is called to be a prophetic community in our world, and I'm sorry, I think we've ceded that responsibility to the news media. Our high priests are either Tucker Carlson or Jake Tapper. And I listen to Christians, and so often they sound so much like either CNN or Fox. And I'll be honest with you, I'm really not interested in CNN Christianity. I'm really not interested in Fox News Christianity. I'm interested in, like, Jesus Christianity. I'm interested in walking down that path that was made by the billions of people who've come before us attempting to follow Jesus, however imperfectly. I'm interested in that kind of Christianity. I'm interested in being that kind of Christian. Because no matter how that word Christian has been bastardized or how it's been beaten up or how it's been polluted by people over the centuries, 
I think it's a way of living and I think it's a word that is well worth reclaiming. And maybe one step in our journey down that path that's been made for us is simply considering taking the log out of our eye. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for words that are deeply challenging and disturbing. For words that make us uncomfortable. And we say thank you for that because it wakes us up to something that we may not even be aware of. And yet, even in this awareness, when we maybe feel this challenge or this conviction well up, we know we're standing before a God of grace and kindness and fidelity and mercy. One who is already forgiven. And so I ask that you um, would cause us in the next moments and days and weeks to truly consider what is it that we're unaware of? What is it that we don't see? What is the log that's sticking out of my eye that I can only see in others? And we ask that we would reflect on and consider these things so that in turn we might become more like the loving, graceful Jesus that we know through Scripture. We pray these things together this morning in the strong name of Jesus and all my friends said.